Uh, good morning, everybody. We're going to get started here momentarily. And uh, uh, first of all, I would like to uh, thank city staff for uh, an awful lot of last-minute work to get ready for today. They're being pulled in a lot of directions to have logistics for this, for work of, of council, and uh, potentially a, a separate uh, consulting agreement. Uh, so thank you to the staff who are here early on a Saturday morning to, to do that. Uh, my name is Pierce Homer, and I have the honor of uh, chairing this commission. Uh, we have an agenda um, before us, and I would um, just like to start very briefly with some introductory remarks about the purpose of the commission. Uh, the commission is created by ordinance, and uh, we are tasked with looking at the ordinance and the language that goes with it and to seek to validate and understand the assumptions behind that. So our task is probably a little bit more boring than some of the more um, robust conversations about good, bad, and different. Our task is really to conduct a community-based due diligence on these ordinances and to make recommendations to, to city council. With that, I would like to uh, start with um, introductions so that we get to know each other a little better uh, and uh, to talk a little bit about our background. And the important thing about this commission is um, many uh, study groups appointed by uh, council tend to be by district representation. This is about um, technical qualifications and professional qualifications. And that's a distinctly different commission um, and I think when you see the talent on this group, it says, boy, Richmond's got some really talented people who are going to ask the hard questions and do a good job on this commission. So I'm going to start with uh, Suzanne. There's a microphone at the table. You might want <clears throat> to pick it up to do the pass around. And just if you give a couple minutes introduction of yourself, your background um, professionally, uh, so that we understand your capabilities and uh, all the things that, you know, uh, go into your being on the commission, and we'll just go around the horn here very quickly. Thank you. <laughs> I'm Susie Long. I'm an attorney. Um, I've been an attorney for 20 years. Um, I have served in many capacities. I've been a litigation attorney. I've done real estate, tax law. The bulk of my experience was in public finance and public finance. Um, I, uh, right now, Real Um, education, 
Corey? My name is Corey Walker. Uh, I'm new to the city, relatively new. I've been here now uh, for two years. Uh, I am a professor, a scholar, scholar of African-American social and religious thought. Uh, I deal with questions around ethics, around philosophy, around theology. Um, my in communities, I'm always, I've always been involved around questions of public memory, around history, uh, around questions of race, and around questions of how we build more robust and sustainable forms of uh, democratic community, and how do we build a more robust democracy. Good morning, I'm John Gurner. I've lived and worked in Richmond for many years, and I was a past president of the Union Hill Civic Association, so I'm sort of familiar with these kinds of uh, get-togethers. In my professional life, I am managing director of Leisure Business Advisors, and uh, my consulting firm uh, does uh, planning studies for new leisure facilities. Uh, All of my work is outside of Richmond and has been for many years. And I'm fortunate to be able to do work not only uh, elsewhere in the country, but elsewhere in the world. Uh, The work, uh, perhaps different than the other members of the commission, what I'll be doing here is actually quite similar to what I do in my my day job. And and, and that is uh, financial analysis and uh, looking at the project in in a similar way that I've done before uh, in consulting work. So... Uh, I'm happy to do this, and it's not unfamiliar uh, territory to me. Thank you. Thank you, John. Um, again, uh, and, and we're going to go to Mimi next, just so the microphone will, will pass properly. Um, uh, I am really uh, pleased and honored to be on this commission. My background is predominantly public service. Um, I started out uh, with a... Um, a degree in philosophy that qualified me for nothing. Started out as a housing inspector, um, and I, I I I learned some very valuable lessons um, as a housing inspector. Uh, when you see the the power of the state and uh, um, the condition of families, um, and and a great respect for what public intervention can do to make things better, uh, as well. And uh, following that, um, I wound up uh, in local government. I worked in Texas, but predominantly here in Virginia. I spent 15 years as the um, deputy county executive in Prince William County. I had oversight of transportation, of land use, and economic development. Some projects there that are relevant to this commission include the uh, Marine Corps Museum on I-95, a visible uh, reminder of uh, our nation's heritage and the uh, George Mason University campus in Prince William, which is now the Science and Technology campus of George Mason University. Uh, Following that, I worked for two great governors and have a long list of projects, many of which involve special tax districts. I did a number of special tax districts in local government and very familiar and comfortable with those financing techniques. Uh, For the last decade, I've been working for a private engineering company. Uh, One of our projects here is the uh, Potterfield Bridge. Uh, we have not done any work with the city since then, but it is a project we're very proud of. So we're here today um, and uh, here to listen and learn uh, from the city and to start asking the hard questions of that. That's my intro. Mimi, let's go to you. 
morning. Uh, Minnie Sadler, born and raised in Richmond. I'm a historic preservation architect. I've, most of my work in the last 20 years has been helping people get historic tax credits for a wide range of projects around Richmond, um, large and small. Um, as a preservation architect, I'll tell you that my greatest interest is in successfully incorporating new development in a historic context. And Richmond has given me opportunities to do that for the last uh, 37 years of my professional career. Thank you. Uh, so I want to briefly uh, go over the entire agenda so uh, people can manage their time. We are committed to uh, getting out of here no later than 12 noon. I know other people have obligations. And I will say, again, for the benefit and to um, reflect the uh, uh, comments of uh, Council President Newble, uh, thank you for your time. This is a big time commitment. Um, I suspect everybody on here has spent a lot of time reading the thousand or so pages. Uh, you're giving up your Saturday mornings. <clears throat> and the way we um, uh, anticipate this commission rolling out is to meet every other Saturday morning. Um, our next meeting will be here. We're looking for a little more geographic diversity and spread on, uh, on future locations uh, as well. 
Um, and then we will have, uh, in mid-December, four formal public hearings, and hopefully those public hearings will be on draft recommendations of, of this commission to, to, to go to back to council. So that's a pretty tight, if you back away the number of meetings, um, we don't have a lot of time, and we're going to have to, I think, very quickly uh, narrow our focus down to a handful of key issues that are of particular moment um, uh, to the study here. So um, in order to accomplish that, we have an agenda here. So you're going to see approval of minutes. Uh, only John and I were the, <laughs> the lone members of that commission uh, here. Uh, that is followed by an item that I do want to have on every agenda, which is uh, I'll call disclosures. Uh, we are under a microscope, and so I personally uh, intend to disclose my campaign contributions there. It's up to you if you want to take advantage of that or not, but it is an opportunity for folks to... Um, you know, make a statement or a disclosure uh, about that. Uh, then we're going to have um, our uh, FOIA, or Freedom of Information Act officer, who is John Gurner. Um, John has done tremendous work. He's gotten himself certified as a, a FOIA instructor um, for the city and the state. He set up a website for us. He's created email addresses for all of us so that all of our communications are easily archived and, and very uh, uh, transparent there. So we have a huge debt of gratitude to, to John, and, but he is going to walk us through FOIA. That's a very important issue here with this commission. We're a, a constituted body and are subject to the rules of, of, of FOIA. Um, then we're going to hear uh, from uh, the city and Mr. Sledge. Uh, accompanied by other city staff is going to give us an overall presentation um, not only of the project but importantly of the architecture of this ordinance so that we can start looking at the documents and um, making reasoned assessments and asking the hard questions that due diligence requires which is really the essence of our, our task. Um, following that, we're going to have questions and answer from the commission to Mr. Sledge and uh, perhaps also uh, from Mr. Brown with the city attorney's office, who's there to assist them if legal questions come up. I have indicated to Mr. Brown, look, some of these are maybe kind of complex questions, so don't expect a yes or no answer today, but they have committed to getting back to us in writing as quickly as possible. Um, following that, we're going to have, with whatever time is left, is a public comment period. One of the things that uh, John and I are hoping to achieve in this format is to have a presentation and then to get some feedback from the community regarding the substance of that presentation. So the purpose is in here, I love the project, I hate the project, the purpose is to obtain feedback on the presentation of that day. And I don't know if that'll work, but we're going to give that a try as a way to, you know, get a greater sense of community involvement on some of these very, very difficult and highly technical issues. Um, we're going to close out with our next steps for where we see the um, information requests are and uh, future meetings as well. So any questions on the agenda? Okay. Then um, I'll just go around uh, very quickly, and I usually start from left to right. Apologies there, but uh, uh, Suzanne, any disclosures that you would uh, choose to make? Mark? No. Okay. Corey? John? Well, I, I was just noting you were mentioning con uh, campaign contributions. I'm the chief election officer of my home precinct in the East End, and so actually I, uh, I, I haven't made campaign contributions uh, since that time. Okay. 
Uh, I did want to disclose I have contributed to uh, the mayor's uh, campaign as well as Councilmember Gray's campaign and a number of uh, state offices. Uh, they tend to be of one persuasion, but not exclusively one persuasion. Uh, I've contributed to a lot of Democrats. <laughs> um, other than that, uh, it's sort of hard to distinguish. Mm -hmm. I have no disclosures. Okay. All right. And we're just going to leave that open as an agenda item in future meetings if folks want to uh, say something along those lines. Again, we're potentially under a microscope, and the, the best remedy uh, uh, for fake news is transparency uh, there. So let's uh, talk about the Freedom of Information Act. And, John, let me move the microphone over to you. Okay. And, again, I really want to thank you for the time and effort you put into setting this up. This is a real important briefing. Well, thank you. I mean, I think as a procedural uh, note, we should probably take a formal vote on approving the minutes from our previous oh. meeting. Everyone's had a copy of it. As Pierce said, uh, it was only the two of us. It was an organizational meeting. But we should go ahead and officially approve it. So I'll go ahead. If you want to go ahead and just do that vote, and then I'll go on with FOIA. Okay. So you've made a motion? I have made a motion to approve the minutes of our organizational me uh, meeting of August the 30th. Okay. And I guess I'm the only one who can second, since I was with the only one second. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Okay. They're approved. And I also wanted to add, and, and, and that's one last note, that is an action item, if we could, so in our written notes. So what we're doing to archive the um, here is we're mostly relying on the audio transcript, but certain action items we will record in the written minutes, and, and that would be one that we would, would record. John? Yes, and this actually rolls into what I'm going to talk about for a moment about FOIA, because you actually uh, took most of what I was going to say as far as what I've been doing uh, involving FOIA. I did take the state training for both meetings and records and have certificates. And uh, what we're trying to do is follow the, the, the practices uh, that are used throughout the state for FOIA and uh, to try to set a standard as, as much as we can. The, in, as far as uh, what we've done so far, uh, in, in addition to the minutes of the initial meeting, what uh, I did was there was one public comment at that uh, August 30th meeting, John Moser. And in addition to his verbal comments, he sent an email message a few days later uh, following up those comments with more details. And uh, I can really appreciate that because personally, I, I write better than I talk. And whenever I give public comments, there's always something I forgot or wanted to expand on. And so I do want to tell you uh, in advance that when we come to the public comment session that please feel free uh, to send an email uh, after today to expand or uh, go into other aspects of what you talk about today verbally, and those written comments will be added to the official minutes of this meeting. Uh, beyond that, with FOIA, uh, I think what we'll be doing and I'll be doing personally today is following the practice that City Council has been following on this issue lately, and that is to ask questions publicly, even if we've already done so before in other meetings, and to share the information that we get 
from those questions publicly. So today I'll be asking uh, some pretty technical financial questions uh, because I'm going through the uh, replicating the bond financing model. But I want you, the public, and, uh, and everyone that's following up on this, uh, listening on the audio, uh, to know that these questions have been asked and as soon as I get the information, that information will be available. Any information that we receive uh, will be publicly uh, available. Uh, this is a, uh, a public uh, process, uh, and we're not uh, doing anything confidentially. So, John, let me just ask a quick question um, it, uh, about appropriate things. So we have a, 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 a um, website as well as email addresses. And is it appropriate for there to be open dialogue on email uh, about a particular issue? You mean among commission members? Among commission members. N no. Actually, one of the things I learned in my meetings training was that actually uh, if you have a public body and even in, in email exchange exchanges, if uh, a quorum of those members begin exchanging views, you now have a meeting. <laughs> and so uh, since I'm coordinating the email uh, system, if we get anywhere near that in our conversations, then I'll make sure to note, you know, to tell members that this is something we have to uh, not discuss any longer in email and, and, and to do so at our next public meeting verbally. So uh, it is appropriate if a member wants to share something with the entire group through the email to throw that out there. It is not appropriate to hit reply all and say, well, I agree, disagree, or let's do X, Y. We can't have that kind of discussion uh, on email. Sort of a, a simple rule of thumb. Okay to share documents and thoughts. Not okay to have dialogue among the commission members on email. And that's a temptation in today's world where everybody hits reply all and then send. <laughs> Dangerous. Anything else on FOIA? No, I think that does it. Okay, any questions? Great. Okay. okay. So uh, we're moving along at a good clip here. Uh, Mr. Sledge, um, and he insists on being called Leonard. So um, we had a, a very good meeting with the uh, acting city administrator, uh, Mr. Sledge, and some other city staff. Um, and it would be helpful, Leonard, since you're relatively new here, like all of us, to introduce yourself a little bit before you, you talk about uh, the project. And uh, I did note that Mr. Brown from the city attorney's office is here, and a lot of our focus is on these ordinances, so I'm sure there will be legal questions that will come up. So welcome, Mr. Sledge. Thank you very much, Chair Palmer. Chair Palmer, Vice Chair Turner, distinguished members of the Navy Commission, good morning. My name is Leonard Sledge, and I have the privilege of serving as the director of the Department of Economic Development for the great city of Richmond, Virginia. I am a Virginian, uh, grew up in the Hampton Roads area, public school, attending graduate, uh, went south to further my education at Morehouse College in Georgia Tech, uh, where I studied general science and industrial engineering. Uh, if Georgia was not far enough away from home, I moved to Arizona after that, where I started my career in sending the government. And the lure of the Commonwealth called me 
I could when you get into your presentation it is on the screens behind you the presentation so um, those of us at this side we may have to turn our backs to you a little bit we apologize uh, uh, for By that no rudeness intent please excuse me with, with all that wonderful education I could not print out a document yeah. uh, that was perfect uh, but I have let Mr. Brown know that we will send the, the version that you see today to her electronically so that she may distribute it to each of you and also for public posting. Today, as I was mentioned, I'm joined by my colleague, Mr. Pastor Brown, uh, Deputy City Attorney for the City of Richmond. Uh, the City Administration has relied on the legal expertise of the City Attorney's Office and their outside legal counsel order to develop the agreements with the Navy Hill District Corporation. We did make our very best attempt to have a representative work here today. However, due to the short notice of the meeting, that was provided to us. Um, the representative from Warwick was not able to join us. However, a representative from Warwick will be in town on Monday uh, to present to City Council during their Navy Hill work session, again, which is slated for Monday, October the 7th, 2019. <clears throat> and on behalf of Mayor Stoney and my colleagues in the city's administration, again, thank you for this opportunity to talk with you about the ordinances and resolution that were introduced to City Council on August the 5th, 2019, that will enable the one going to of an ADL project. I would be remiss if I did not acknowledge the presence of Councilwoman Kim Gray, and I think she is the only member of Council who I saw. I always could get concerned about not calling out somebody. Uh, so thank you for being here with us this morning, ma'am. Throughout this presentation, you will also see images that depict the plan development that will come with the approval of the ordinances and agreements that have been introduced. And more than an economic development project, the Navy Hill project truly is, we believe, a transformational economic empowerment project that creates over 21,000 construction permanent jobs, and that's direct and indirect in the new job creation creates more than 408 much-needed affordable housing units in the city of Richmond, creates $300 million in minority business participation opportunities, provides for a new GRTC bus transit center, renovates and adaptively reuses the historic Blues Armory, creates a new 500-plus rooms, full-service convention hotel, improves walkability in our downtown, and replaces a functionally obsolete Richmond Coliseum which is a modern arena. At the conclusion of this presentation, we are more than glad to answer your questions. Should you have a question that we do not immediately know the answer to, or feel that it is out of our purview today, we will gladly write down your question and provide a response in writing as quickly as possible. And so here's our outline for today's presentation. Uh, recognizing that some of you may have seen or heard one of our presentations, and also recognizing that some of you may not, as well as those who are here with us today, some of the slides and the visual images help to give a sense again of what the ordinances ultimately will produce in the city of Richmond. And so, setting the framework and context for this in terms of why 
today. In 2009, Richmond City Council approved the 2009 downtown master plan. There was a lot of citizen engagement as a part of that process. The downtown master plan spoke very specifically about reopening East Clay Street and dividing Fort Inn, integrating the Richmond Coliseum into a wall of urban fabric, improving the connections between the convention center and its environs. And more recently, in 2017, with the Pulse Corridor master plan, that plan speaks to mixed-use development on vacant and underutilized parcels around the convention center, enhancing the visitor experience and city-owned property fostering mixed income redevelopment. And more importantly, our partners have created and are implementing master plans to Commonwealth of Virginia with the General Assembly Building, as well as Virginia Commonwealth University's Medical College campus. They're actually moving forward with construction. Uh, there are right now three cranes in downtown Richmond, soon to be a fourth. Uh, great projects, great partners add to the economic vitality in our city, but they do not do much in terms of producing much needed tax revenue for our city. Uh, the recommendation again to be implemented and assumes connectivity to other master plan uses. This map gives an idea for everyone exactly where the Navy Hill area is. North of Broad Street, south of Interstate 95, and surrounded by Monroe Ward, the Central Business District, shop of the State Capitol, ECU's Medical Center, and the Virginia Biotech and Research Park. So when we talk about a transformational mixed-use development or the need for one, uh, why do we need this project? Quite honestly, this is what the area looks like now. A lot of underutilized service parking lots, Actually, obsolete 1970s era Richmond Coliseum and a Blues Armory building, a historic building, shamefully, that is camera ready for episodes of Walking Dead. We're not getting the highest and best use on our city owned property, and quite honestly, our planning studies approved by City Council affirm the need for a project like this to rebuild our city center. And so, with those things in mind, the city issued a request for proposals. The Navy Hill District Corporation responded to the request for proposals, and what was identified, outlined, the Navy Hill District Corporation responded to replacement of the Coliseum, mixed income and affordable housing, local job creation with a strong minority business participation element, replacement of the GRTC Transit Center, convention service, a full service, excuse me, convention center hotel, and historic preservation in the adaptive reuse of the Blues Armory. This, again, is an aerial depiction of what the area looks like. Uh, the Richmond Coliseum is the most distinguishable uh, piece of real estate there. And with the transformational mixed-use development that's been proposed by the Naval District Corporation, this is what that area will be recreated to. So starting with the first ordinance, the ordinance to create a special city revenue fund. The ordinance reads to create the Navy Hill Fund, establishes the creation of the Navy Hill Fund in which the city's director of finance credits and deposits all city incremental revenues per the ordinance. The city makes a payment in the amount credited and deposited in the Navy Hill Fund to the Economic Development Authority for payment in the annual bond debt service. There's a cooperation agreement that is also part of the development agreement that enables the commitment for the city to pay the Economic Development Authority the revenues in the Navy Hill Fund. And that is Exhibit A of the development agreement. The baseline definitions are identified for the incremental revenues uh, for each portion of the 
shows the outline of the increment financing area for this particular project. From the land mass standpoint, it represents approximately 0.7% of all of the real estate in the city of Richmond. Uh, from a revenue standpoint, real estate tax is approximately 8%. What's important, as some have asked the question, why is the increment financing area so large? Approximately $1.45 billion of real estate in this area is tax exempt. And immediately to the east of the increment financing area, there's another one, approximately $1.5 billion of tax exempt real estate, creating a total of approximately $3 billion of tax exempt real estate in our downtown area. From a taxable standpoint, there's approximately $2.1 or $2.11 billion of taxable real estate in the increment financing area. The development agreement uh, associated documents spell out very clearly uh, the revenue streams that were going to the Mayfield Fund. It includes the real estate tax generated from the development outlined in the agreement, the incremental new real estate tax developed through the normal assessment process and city council making its decisions whether or not to raise or to reduce our annual real estate tax rate. Again, all in the incremental amounts. New sales tax generated from the new developments or retail or commercial operations and the new developments outlined in the development agreement, as well as the lodging tax outlined in the development agreement, depot taxes, meals taxes, with the exception of the 1.5% that is specifically dedicated to Richmond City Schools, incremental parking revenue, arena, and armory revenues as well. The next ordinance is the ordinance to convey certain city-owned real estate to the city's economic development authority. The ordinance reads to declare surplus and direct the conveyance of a portion of the city-owned real estate known as 601 East Lee Street, consisting of approximately 171,906 square feet for nominal consideration to the economic development authority of the city of Richmond. This ordinance declares the parcel of surplus real estate to be conveyed to the Economic Development Authority of the City of Richmond. And what should be focused on is the portion of the real estate. Uh, in this development agreement, we are actually creating new parcels and conveying right away and creating encroachment for this development. And so a lot of the parcels, and, and we, will, we will show you uh, the current city parcels and also the new parcels that will be created because again in many instances parcels do not exist that are part of this development agreement. And so here in terms of the conveyance to the Economic Development Authority, uh, the site that we refer to as the Richmond Coliseum, uh, the site itself in totality as it exists today is not being created. Uh, parcel 81 is the new parcel that, is being, that will be created and conveyed by this ordinance, consisting of approximately 3.95 acres. Uh, this site will be remain under the ownership of the city's economic development authority. Uh, you will also know that the red lines or the red borders or boundaries uh, are the creation of the new parcel. Uh, the hatched areas and the other markings there show right away that will be. Part of the development that also creates the alignment. 
closed is not a standalone arena. Uh, it will not be an island to itself, but it will have adjoining parcels with development, again, to create synergy in this new development. Uh, we are of a firm belief that the more dense we are with this project, the more successful it will be, again, with a mix of uses. And so parcel A3 will be an office tower, and parcel A2 will be a residential tower. This slide shows the program ground plane or footprint, highlighting retail uses, office uses, and again, the arena. This image for the benefit of everyone shows what the intersection of 5th and Clay Street looks like today. Uh, you see the exit ramp from the parking garage, the plaza of the Richmond Coliseum, and through the development, this is a conceptual image, again, showing the mix of uses on that one site. But for the purpose of this ordinance, as introduced, it will convey the middle portion of the site, parcel A1, which the arena will be built on to the city's economic development authority, which would be the owner of both the parcel and the new arena. And again, another depiction of the proposed development. The arena is being designed and programmed so that it would have a maximum of 17,500 seats, which would make it the largest in the Commonwealth of Virginia. But what is unique about it, in addition to being the largest in the Commonwealth of Virginia, is it is not, it is not dependent on a major sports team as an anchor. Uh, there will be club suites, there will be ample seating, and an arena that can be reconfigured for sporting events, could be reconfigured to house conventions, large meetings, small-scale events as well. Uh, people laugh, but I'm really looking forward to seeing PDR or professional bull riding in the arena. <laughs> the next ordinance is the ordinance to convey certain currently owned city real estate to the Navy Hill District Corporation. The ordinance reads to declare surplus and direct the conveyance of certain parcels or portions thereof, city-owned real estate, known as 601 East Lee Street, 501 North 7th Street, 801 East Clay Street, 800 East Clay Street, 500 North 10th Street, 500 East Marshall Street, 500A East Marshall Street, 116 North 7th Street, 114 North 7th Street, 112 North 7th Street, and 401 East Broad Street to the Navy Hill District Corporation for the purpose of facilitating the development of an area bound generally by East Lee Street on the north, North 10th Street on the east, East Marshall Street on the south, and North 5th Street on the west. This ordinance declares the parcels as surplus real estate to be conveyed to the Navy Hill District Corporation. The purchase and sale agreement shows the negotiated price of $15.8 million, excuse me, for parcels A2 and A3, and keep in mind those parcels do not exist today. Parcels B, parcel C, parcel D, parcel E, F1, I, and N. I should also note that we're actually having the developer maximize underutilized real estate, not just in surface parking fields, but around the existing parking structures that we have in the city of Richmond. The existing parking structures will continue to be owned by the city of Richmond. However, right of way will be, will be created into new parcels sold as a part of the development, and that's where we will see new vertical development as well. The conveyance of the parcels does not occur 
6, section 6.1.C, again, the conditions precedent to the financial close of the bonds. And you can also refer to Exhibit K in the development agreement that shows the precise parcels. Refer to Exhibit H in the development agreement that lists the conditions to finalize the closing and dedication of portions of private way to enable the creation of parcels to be sold, aligns public streets, and creates new portions of Clay Street and Sixth Street. I would also like to point out uh, that the bond financing for the arena is non-recourse meaning that it's only backed by incremental revenues outlined in the ordinances and development agreement. And as such, bond buyers want to ensure that there is sufficient revenue generated to repay the bond debt over the term of the bonds with regards to constructing the buildings as outlined in the master plan, which is an exhibit in the development agreement. As you read or have heard, the city, uh, the city's financial advisor, Davenport's Davenport presented its fiscal and economic impact statement. Private investment of $900 million will be programmed to be funded contemporaneously with the construction of the new arena. Davenport has served as the city's financial advisor for many years, and this is a place where the city pushed for additional protections to ensure that a significant amount of equity and debt on the private side have been provided to the city prior to going to the bond market. The city and bond buyers are aligned in this area. If the conditions precedent are not achieved, specifically the development agreement, Article 6, Section 6.1c, and the purchase and sale agreement, Section 2, Schedule 2, excuse me, Section 2a, which speaks to the financial close occurring on or prior to the closing date, please note that the financial close in the documents is defined in the development agreement as the issuance of capital B bonds, bond proceeds of a project account to be available for the design and construction of the arena under the arena lease. In other words, if the bonds do not sell, then the land for the private development does not get sold. This table here simply highlights each of the parcels, shows the square footage, and the associated approximate acreage. One of the other key pieces of the development agreement is the private funding that will be used to make public infrastructure improvements. Currently, Clay Street is not, is not a continuous street. A portion of the street goes underground to service the Richmond Coliseum. That will be brought to grade, and also the development will be on that parcel as a part of, again, the, the National Development Plan. Also, 6th Street, if you're traveling north on 6th Street from Broad, you will notice that you dead end at the plaza for the Richmond, well, actually, you dead end at the 6th uh, Street Market. As a part of the development, 6th Street will be opened up. There will be a grand pedestrian plaza. Again, with retail, ground-level commercial retail uses, we get to see the beautiful architecture and facade of the Blues Armory. And again, Clay Street is opened up clear out accordingly. Again, going back to this particular parcel, parcels A3 and A2 will be conveyed to the Navy Hill District Corporation. Again,
again, you see how that how those parcels will be programmed in terms of commercial, retail, office, and residential. Again, a rendering of the proposed development on that site. Parcel B is an existing parking garage. Parcel B will have again a wrap, a residential wrap around it. Uh, new parcels being created as a part of the development. And one of the things that I'd also like to point out at this time is that one of the one of the commitments made, and you'll see it in the agreement, is a minimum of lead silver for all the buildings that will be constructed as a part of this project. You see the ground plane for parcel B and parcel C as well. Parcel C is currently a service parking lot. An aerial view of what those areas look like today at 8th and Clay Street. <coughs> we imagine with the vertical development wrapping the existing parking garage by creating a new parcel and selling and conveying the parcel as outlined in the ordinance. <coughs> parcel D. surface parking lot, and also the public safety building on the adjacent parcel. When I first started working for the city four months ago and started hearing and learning about this project, I kept hearing people talk about uh, the atrocious nature of our current transfer center. And I kept telling myself, I need to drive to the transfer center and really see what people are talking about. Not realizing I had been driving by it every day. <laughs> Just yesterday, we took a walking tour with the planning commission of the Navy Hill area, and, and again, just seeing the horrendous condition that Richmonders and users of our public transit system endure as they're waiting to change buses, waiting outside in the elements, not able to have a bus to fully get to the curb. You'll notice the gap and also not having the opportunity to use the bathroom, be in another facility, purchase a bottle of water or a snack while they're waiting. One of the key pieces of this development is the creation of not a transfer center, but a transit center on a currently, currently underutilized service parking lot. Uh, this has been designed in consultation with the GRTC, but more than just a transit center, truly maximizing all of the available real estate on the site to create an office tower and a residential tower as well on a raised platform along with a green space. This is a rendering of what the new transit center would look like. Again, you'll notice in the middle, an air-conditioned area, complete with restroom facilities, a place for a person to buy a snack, a bottle of water, get out of the elements, a place where all of Richmond we're using public transportation to go to and from work, to and from home, and to travel throughout the city to carry out their business can wait with pride. Parcel E and Parcel F. Again, new parcels being created. Uh, parcel F2, it's important to know, Parcel F2 is the Blues Armory. It is not a parcel for sale. Uh, by design, this parcel will be conveyed, transferred by the Richmond Redevelopment Housing Authority, and the, Richmond, and the Blues Armory will be adaptively reused and renovated using private dollars as a result of this project. Really critical that we have this beautiful structure uh, 
space for the associated full-service convention hotel. You see the uses in each of the areas of the parcel, again, residential real estate. This particular E1 and E2, uh, this will be for sale units, both affordable and market rate. This gives you a ground level uh, depiction of the Crystal Palace. The one thing they did do right, Mr. Shule, with the Crystal Palace is they constructed it in such a way so that the Crystal Palace can literally be lifted off without endangering the facade of the Blue Armory. Again, the rear of the Blues Armory, nothing architecturally significant, but yet we have this underutilized, barren pedestrian plaza. This shows the outline of the Crystal Palace, which currently will get lifted off. You have a pedestrian walkway uh, running between the new residential structure wrapped around the existing parking garage, and you also have the beautiful Blues Armory open back up for public use. This gives you a ground level rendering of what the area can be like, what it should be like. A uh, place for people to sit, place for people to grab a cup of coffee, have a conversation, and enjoy themselves in our downtown area. The city of Richmond, we have a wonderful regional tourism organization. Our convention center does very well, but at the same time, it does not fully maximize all of its opportunities because we do not have enough convention quality room blocks or room nights available through lack of hotel space. This project will bring a 500 plus room high hotel on this underutilized site, complete with a room block agreement so that our convention and tourism staff can go out and secure business ahead of time so that we can fully realize revenue opportunities for the city of Richmond. We have lost out on approximately 50,000 room nights because we do not have adequate hotel room space. But I firmly believe that our hotel market is strong. If we think about it for a second, when I first moved back to Virginia in 2005, the Richmond Marriott was a full service hotel. Years later, the adaptive reuse of the Miller and Rhodes building opened up as Hilton Garden Inn. It's not a Hilton Garden Inn today. It is a full-service Hilton Hotel. Very rarely do hotel flags go up. They typically go down. What used to be a Hilton, after aging, not being kept up, market sagging, oftentimes will downgrade to a flag that has really good cookies, uh, the double treat. Uh, but again, full-service hotel to help drive additional tourism dollars in the city in a way that uses the Blues Armory. The Blues Armory is three levels, approximately 18 to 20,000 square feet. The ground level will be retail space, uh, a fresh food market, along with a teaching kitchen and an incubator space. The second level is imagined as a music club. Uh, again, just wonderful opportunities for entertainment. And the top level with it's iron steel trusses being reused to be the ball in space, seating for capacity for up to 1,000 uh, people. And this will be connected to the full service convention hotel. Site I is currently the social services building. Again, as a part of the development, you see how the space is programmed, retail space, office space, 
residential space. This is an aerial view showing that building just across the street from City Hall, Marshall, and a conceptual rendering in terms of the lot background of the elevation of that building. Mr. Sledge. Yes, sir. Because the commission is focused on the ordinance structure. Yes, sir. And because I am concerned that we're delving into matters that's out of the purview of the commission, um, as well as we're losing, we're going deeper into detail that then we can't properly adjudicate because the charge to the commission is to assess the framework, the ordinance framework. Yes, sir. I would ask if you could really streamline uh, your presentation because there, you're raising a number of issues uh, just in terms of presenting the overall project that we can't properly adjudicate. We need to know why certain ordinances are structured the way they're structured, what work they're uh, attempting to do, how do they work together to integrate uh, the entire project, and what are the implications for other development projects in the city. So I'm, I'm just asking, can you move out a little bit and focus really on those ordinances? Yes, sir. And as I mentioned, the reason we're showing this is because it shows what the ordinances enable, sir. But I, I hear your point and we'll continue to move forward. So uh, just just comment there. <laughs> uh, we'll have an opportunity uh, at the Q&A. We're going to take a short break at the end of this presentation, and I think we'll come back to the Q&A exactly on that is to tie some of this back into what's here in these uh, in these dreams. So thank you. All right. Go ahead, Larry.
director of public works is authorized as a result of the documents to determine that modifications to any road project are necessary based on the results of the traffic impact analysis. And upon demand by the chief administrative officer, the developer shall dedicate excess areas of the city if determined by the director of public works that the areas are necessary for use as public right-of-way or the of street or or completion, excuse me, of street projects. This image, uh, this map is shown as a part of that ordinance. Uh, the level of detail we're not able to see just because of the resolution and the size of it, but it does show the areas uh, that are specifically called out for this ordinance. The ordinance to authorize certain encroachments in the public right-of-way. Yes, sir. So I, I think in line with Mr. Walker, some of these things like encroachments, uh, I deal with that on a day-to-day -day basis. We can we can do that. I, I would move quickly over some of the those things to, to get to some of the other ordinances, uh, just, just to kind of highlight them a little bit, if you would, please. Yes, sir. Uh, so again, the encroachments, uh, the chairman's request, we'll just microwave through that. Uh, again, you see the map, uh, the same map depicting uh, the encroachment areas. The ordinance to modify the zoning regulations applicable and the CN policy and all additionally. And on that, those are before the Planning Commission, correctly? Yes, sir. Correct. So, um, again, I don't think we're necessarily going to get into a ton of land use uh, issues here uh, on that. There's another body and a whole separate process uh, for that. Do you feel the same about the rezoning, Mr. Chairman? Is it not? If so, I'll just keep on moving. Yes, sir. All right. So we have a rezoning of properties. This map shows what that rezoning will cover. And I will say as an editorial comment, these are very consequential decisions by the Planning Commission and the City Council. This can't happen without it, but again, our focus is, Mr. Walker has pointed out, there's a separate process for these. Now, I know, Mimi, you may have some additional questions about land use when we get to the, the, the Q&A, but we're not going to get into the detail of the, the planning and zoning um, types of ordinances uh, here today. Yes, sir. Uh, there is an ordinance in place that designates certain streets as the priority streets of street Oregon and commercial streets on the official zoning map. Uh, there is a language in the ordinance there that you have as well, a map depicting that. And lastly, while not an ordinance was also introduced uh, as a part of the documents on August the 5th, the resolution establishing the key funding priorities for the project's revenue surplus. Essentially, all surplus, all surplus revenues, the recommendation is that any program is following 50% to raise public schools, 34% for public safety, core city services, 15% for housing and homeless services, and 1% for the arts, history, and culture. And that includes our so, Leonard, once again, I want to thank you for the, the presentation. We're going to put you on the hot seat right now. Um, and and uh, just in terms of uh, protocols here, many of the questions that may get asked may require some assistance or thinking, so we don't need yes or no answers right away. Mr. Chairman, if you will indulge me for a moment. Sure. There is a very important addition uh, that Mr. Uh, that Haskell has to add, Mr. Brown has to add about the ordinances. If, if you will indulge us with sir. Sure.
in the back part of the room. So excuse me for yelling uh, on this. Let's get started um, with Q&A. And uh, again, Mr. Brown, you may want to, I know several uh, folks who ask questions that probably have a little bit of a, a legal uh, aspect to them. I'm going to start um, around the horn, Ms. Long, and, and start with you and, and then just, just go around. Uh, as I indicated, uh, it, it may be that there's not an immediate answer, but uh, given our schedule, uh, we do hope that there can be within a week um, prompt responses, either in writing or some other form of, of communication to, to answer questions. Yes, yes Mr. Chairman, and what we'll do if it, if it pleases you in the body is we will send them written responses to Ms. Brown uh, and have her disseminate them to the commission. Okay. Right. Ms. Long? really kind of a, a basic question that I think might help um, our commission sort of understand the players in this, this uh, project. I mean, I see when I look through Davenport's presentation, there was a firm London that's referenced and a couple other parties. I mean, if you guys could just sort of give us, can you not If you guys could just give us a quick um, overview an overview of, of the different players. You know, you've got the city attorney, you've got bond council, you might have other councils in the mix, you have a financial advisor, you have this group, Hunton, that's run some numbers. Um, there could be others, but I would imagine that you could pretty quickly rattle that off. Would you set the table for us for, you know, who the players are? Thank you. So, uh, if I could just interrupt, it seems like that microphone um, is uh, failing us. The question was, could you please outline 
the major contributors to um, the city's efforts, uh, the, your outside uh, counselors and advisors. Yes, sir. Uh, thank you for the question, ma'am, for the clarification, sir. Uh, as I stated that with my opening comments, uh, the city attorney's office has been arm-in-arm with the administration uh, through the negotiation and development of the agreements. The city attorney's office secured outside legal counsel for it. Uh, again, unfortunately, due to the short notice of the meeting, the representative report I was not able to join us today. Representative will be present at Monday City Council work session and in conversation with one of the commission members uh, during the intermission. Uh, express a desire to have board come at some point. We will reach out to them to make that a reality. Uh, Davenport uh, has been the city's long-term financial advisor. Uh, 20 plus years. Uh, Mr. David Rose is here with us today in the audience uh, as both a citizen and uh, representative of Davenport. And Hunton Strategic Partners is a Chicago based firm. Uh, Mr. Rob Hunton is the principal, founder, president, and CEO of that company. Uh, he has an extensive background and doing analysis of this nature and sort across the country. Uh, and And I will add on that there is online a copy of the Hunden report that was done almost a year ago, if I remember uh, correctly. Is that on? I couldn't find it. So is that, on our that, that is available on the website. Uh, if needed, we will also send a copy to Ms. Brown to disseminate to the members. And today, does Hunden do things like feasibility studies and things like that? Uh, in, in terms of the full breadth, I, I don't. Again, so for folks who want to go out, it is available on the city website, uh, and John will we'll be adding it to our site. Suzanne, did you have other questions? Um, yeah, I think that's, and then you have, I'll say, the bond Of the 
one individual? We would note that question to the board and provide a list of the assumptions, mm -hmm. uh, the planning assumptions that went into the analysis. Okay, thank you. Second question. Could, uh, on that, could I just an added note while you're there to combine would be to see sources and uses combined? To clarify, Mr. Chair, the sources and uses of the, of the revenue streams? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Sorry to interrupt, Martin. Um, as a general education tutorial for the community, um, regarding my course on the next Yes, sir. Could you in the future, thanks, in a future session provide an example of a shortfall in revenue? And exactly how that shortfall would be picked up by the bond investor and not a lot of other tactical. And if I understand your question, sir, you'd like to see an example, a real life example, where there's been a non-recourse bond issue. And yes. where, let's say, let me, let me pick a percent. Let's say you know, revenue falls short by 20% of projections, provided a, a, a tangible walkthrough example of how that shortfall is picked up by the investor. Absolutely. Um, for a local example, you might want to look at the road that goes to the airport. <laughs> the road that goes to the airport in terms of non recourse bond? It fell short. <laughs> so, um, again, let me interrupt. I do have a little bit of painful experience <laughs> on that roadway. So, uh, and, and it's probably good to, to look at here. It's the Pocahontas Parkway was originally uh, developed as a public benefit corporation, uh, 6320, non-recourse bonds. Uh, we went through a revenue shortfall, and after the fact, we're advised, well, the Commonwealth does have um, appointees, and uh, through their appointees establishes the toll rates. And uh, so we were advised by the Commonwealth's financial advisor to uh, completely get out of that agreement and create uh, a, a very different structure under the Public-Private Partnership Act. Um, that subsequently was not successful, but in that instance, the Commonwealth was insulated under the PPTA. Commonwealth was not insulated under the Public Benefit uh, Corporation. So it's probably a good example for uh, your folks to be looking at. I didn't want to provide that, but I just happened to live through that. <laughs> Next question may be included in the sources and uses, but I'm sure will make certain. Regarding the tax rates for the assumption to write real estate taxes, could you give me something in the future that explains how you projected current tax rate versus future assumption to write tax rates to be opened up to your There was a planning assumption of inflationary growth at 2%. 2% even across the years. Yes. As a planning assumption. Is that a safe assumption? I'm not a con, sir. <laughs> Discussion point. Um. <clears throat> On 
first document I referred to this year. This is Davenport's system analysis impact of cumulative debt. There's a narrow wall in the window, if I'm understanding this document correctly, between scenario one and four. Scenario four is break even at 46% projection versus doing nothing. So the success path is at minimum 46%, and they come out the same with doing nothing. Is that correct? Am I understanding that correctly? That is my understanding of the analysis, sir. That at 46% of projected revenue, after projected revenues, it is that we do nothing. I would like to add, in that scenario, however, the city is able to realize the construction of the new arena and the new part, the new portion of the development. Subtext of that question would be retail tax revenue in a volatile market environment where some retail environments have been successful and some retail environments have failed. Where do those assumptions come from? I'll check. We will follow that question, and we will provide an answer to that as well, sir. Let's talk later. Thank you, Mark. Corey? I just want to know a simple process question. And the process to declare surplus is at the beginning of both of the ordinances. What's the process for that, and are there any implications, or is that just a normal procedure to declare real property that the city has as surplus? Is that an option, or how does that work, and why is that there? I'm going to ask Mr. Brown to come and answer that question. Yes, sir. I understand your question. You're basically just asking why we say to declare surplus in these ordinances. Most city property is for public use, held for public use, but over time, there may not be a use for it. So the declaration of surplus is just something from our city code that is done as a prelude to selling city-owned property. And there are no fiscal implications of declaring something as surplus? Not that I remember. It's just part of what we say when we sell property. Now, we go through the ordinances, and there is one ordinance that indicated that the CAO directs what the Economic Development Corporation must do. What ordinance was that? That had to be around the ordinance. Yeah. Here's the one. We authorize the Chief Administrative Officer to accept. I'm trying to figure out. Can you tell me which ordinance you're looking at, sir? I'm looking at Ordinance 2019-215. We have a role for the Chief Administrative Officer. It's in multiple ordinances, so I'm trying to figure out just what is the role of a – and if I'm correct, the CAO is an appointed 
individuals. Are you speaking the language on page two of that ordinance, just as an example? I understand you say. Just as an example. Uh, uh, that the chief administrative officer is authorized to accept for the purpose of public right away of dedication of the following all is provided in the development agreement. That's, that's the one. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and you, you will see that more than once. Uh, again, someone has to sign uh, legal documents to buy the city. This, this document is what authorizes this, the chief administrative officer to do those things. The chief administrative officer is an appointee of the mayor. Uh, she runs the city day-to-day operations. It's part of the developer. So, the, so it's just perfunctory, just normal course of business for the city. It's simply that someone has to sign these documents and, and make these decisions as to whether something has been performed or not. Now, what's that? The, we've been, the fiscal impact of these ordinances to facilitate this project we now have 1.5 billion over the next 30 years, right? Yes, sir, that's the projection. Or, or, I'm sorry, are you referring to the investment or which page are you? Environmental revenues, uh, project revenues are anticipated yeah. to the city, right? The fiscal impact and cost. I mean, what, what a lot of my questions are really, I want this to be an education for an education in democracy. How do we? How are we proposing to do this? So, if we're declaring land surplus, and that's right at the beginning of each ordinance, then that needs to be explained that this is how we do it as a city. How a public entity transfers land over to a a, a private entity. That's what we do. So that's all, all my questions are really about how do we educate ourselves on this process. And I don't want us to have a recourse to, well, this is technical. So anything that's technical has to be understood by every citizen in the city of Richmond. We have to make sure everyone understands. So um, I just have some very basic questions. I'm just trying to figure out what the language means. Um, so if we're we're front loading the I mean I, I put notes up here like if this this goes against the Marx issue around some of the scenarios or the assumptions that are built into it is we're going to re- we're projecting to realize 1.53 billion, 1.535 billion, right? Am I correct? That's the total value. That's the total development, including the arena. So incremental city and Navy Hill project revenues are anticipated to approximate 1.535 billion over the next 30 years. Okay, so now we're talking about revenue. <coughs> yeah, okay. No, this is not the cost. This, these are the revenues. Right. That's what we're projecting. That's about fifty-one million a year, or do we have a schedule of that? I mean, I'm just looking at thirty years. I, I just said one point five three five divided by thirty, but it's not that, right? We're glad to provide that to the commission. So, what's the? I mean, 
that's the number that's just out there, 1.5 billion over 30 years. And when I break it down over 30 years, that's 51 million annually. We have general fund revenues of the city of 757 million, you know, 758 million just in fiscal 2020. So we're looking at you know 6.8 increase. That's really I'm looking at is that. I mean, even is that number right? I don't know. If you look at inflation rate right now, it's 1.5%. So I don't know what that number means. So that's what I'm saying. I'm, I'm trying to figure out what these numbers mean and why they are so central to how we've constructed the ordinances. So I want to, that's why I said I want to move away from the project and all of what we're going to do to actually what what's the framework that we're setting up through these ordinances to actually realize uh, an economic development scenario. Just to give you an example, from 84 to 2008, we roughly have realized revenues of 1.5 billion in the city of Richmond. And we've done that. But now we're saying we're going to give 50% to schools and all of this other stuff. 1% to art, history, and cultural opportunities. But I'm looking at it 1%. Is tourism our dominant driver? What's the rank of tourism? I mean, overall? Overall in the city. Mr. Walker, those were proposed by resolution to city council uh, in terms of how those surplus revenues. That was just a proposal to city council. Uh, and resolution form, city council certainly does have the purview to decide how many surplus revenues and how all revenues in the city. But if, they, if, if it's predicated on assumptions that won't be realized, then we're we're we're, we're setting up a structure. We're saying that we're, what we're doing as an advisory commission, as I understand, is that we are setting up an organizational structure. A framework. We're reviewing a framework in order to realize these revenues and these surplus revenues that then the city is saying 50% is going to schools, 34%, and we're seeing all of that out in the public discourse. But if the framework is wrong and the assumptions informing the framework is wrong, and then there are things that come up that occur because we've set up the wrong framework then how do we legitimately go back to citizens, our fellow citizens, and say, well, we looked at these ordinances, and we, we, we just, you know, the ordinances set up an incorrect framework to realize the promises that are already being put out there. So I want us to, I want us to be very clear. If we could walk through each and every ordinance, and then look at the implications that tie these ordinances together. If we can develop some mechanism for that, I don't know how do we, you know, some visual to do that, that would be great in order to educate all of us about how all of this works. And that's more of a statement and a recommendation um, than, a, than a question to Mr. Sweat. I will. There are a number of things in there that will have to be validated uh, by city staff. I do think one of the things that would help all of us is some kind of flow chart that perhaps would show, uh, and maybe even just uh, based on the conditions preceding. Right? That's a very important document here. 
um, but there are then there are the land transfers, and they go through a couple of hands, and and um, we'll we'll see. I may turn a little bit to our architect here, who can help us out. <laughs> uh, we need some visualization. I think is what you're saying here to convey a series of transactions. We would welcome any assistance or ideas from the city or even the development team to help the city, but to, uh, this obviously needs to come through you, Leonard, um, to, to lay out that, that pathway, because it is, it is difficult to understand. Mr. Chairman, Mr. Walker, members of the commission will confer with the development team as well as our legal counsel, city attorney's office, and our outside legal counsel, as well as our financial advisor. Necessary steps to get that you work. I believe I hear you are asking for. Anything else, Gordon? No. John? First of all, I just want to emphasize that although uh, we are looking specifically at the ordinances, the commission members have flexibility to use your experience and your perspective to look at this in whatever way you see fit. However you feel can be helpful to the community in looking at this project and, and these ordinances, please feel free. I don't, I don't want you to feel limited in, in what you're doing. I also want to follow up uh, a question that Mr. Walker just asked about the CAO's role in this uh, project. Uh, although there are a number of places where the CAO does as you would expect uh, the chief uh, administrative officer for the city uh, to authorize sign various documents. There are at least one, there's at least one specific area where the CAO is uh, helping to determine what the parameters are. And, and what I'm looking at in particular, because this is what I'll be focused in the near term, near term is the bond financing. According to the cooperation agreement, uh, it's, uh, it says, as far as the bond financing, it says the CAO, in cooperation with the EDA, after City Council has approved the ordinance with that developer agreement, afterwards, the CAO with the EDA determines the bond amount, the term of the bond, the bond interest rate, and the security for the bonds. Uh, am I correct in saying that? Okay. I mean, again, I'm not expecting an immediate answer, but of course, if you have one, that that would be helpful. Jen, I think you're probably generally correct. We would want to look back at the text of the cooperation yourself to make sure we give you the best answer. Uh, I know that we're just doing bond issues right now for the city, and generally, as part of those, the ordinance itself says the chief administrative officer or the director of finance has certain roles in determining what the interest rates are. But, but when I look, and, and, and you're right, especially with an interest rate, it's hard to nail down a very specific number. But typically, and again, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, when I've looked at uh, similar ordinances authorizing bonds, even when it comes to the interest rate, there's usually a range of what it's going to be. In this, right, a certain bond parameter, because you know, you know pretty much that. You know, we don't know the specific amount, but it's going to be within this range. So at least the, the, the authorizing body has some sense of what the bond, bond rate's ultimately going to be. And as far as I can see in this developer agreement, 
as far as the specific numbers. I mean, we've seen numbers in presentations, but personally, I'm specifically looking at what's legally binding, what's in the legal agreements. And of course, we have lawyers that can help from that perspective. But as a financial analyst, I'm looking at what's in the agreement as far as, well, this is binding. And so therefore, there's some, some, some uh, confidence that that's going to occur. Uh, specifically, as far as the bond financing, uh, you know, originally with, with Davenport, uh, even as, as late as just a few weeks ago, we were hearing $350 million for the bond. And then in the Concord Eastridge presentation uh, just recently, it's $305 million, which is closer to what it was planned for back when the developer did the original proposal. And so you know, even the bond amount itself is not in the legal agreement at this point, as far as I can tell. And again, please correct me if I'm wrong, but when I go through the 1,000-page ordinance, they're in the legal language. I mean, what is actually binding to the city? There is no dollar amount for what that bond could be. I mean, you know, we're told it could be $350 million, uh, a month ago, it could be $305 million, the current number, but legally... It could be even. It could be more than that, you know, because it's not in that document. Uh, the amount, the even an interest uh, rate uh, range, a term. You know, we're talking thirty years with a twenty-one uh, accelerated uh, twenty-year accelerated payout, and this, and and also security. I mean, typically you're going to have security for a revenue bond, and so right now, you know, that's not in in, in the the legal language of the agreement as far as from what I can see. Um, so I just wanted to get confirmation, you don't have to do it right now, that I'm correct in saying that as far as the legal agreement, those parameters are not there. And we will, we will check that into the firm answer. Uh, I, I can offer that the bond documents for this deal do not exist yet. They have not been drafted. Okay. I'm going to come back to that in a moment, but I just wanted to go through the, the, the questions that I have here. And this is from my perspective, because right now my personal role is going to be in doing a due diligence effort to um, validate the bond financing model by replicating it. You know, at this point, I'm doing it from scratch, and typically that's what I do, because you learn a lot when you have to rebuild a spreadsheet from, from nothing because you learn how all the assumptions come together. And uh, so I'm learning a lot as I'm doing this, this process, although it takes time. Uh, but to help me in doing that effort, which, which I will present at one of our future meetings, uh, there are some specific questions. And again, I'm not expecting answers right now, but I want to get these questions out publicly. And I will follow this up with an email so you don't have to take notes on these questions. Uh, the first involves the residential uh, development. Uh, could I have what the number of residential units and affordable housing units for each of the parcels? Uh, right now in the developer agreement, it's square footage. There's no 
uh, unit. And typically people look at it uh, by units, especially with affordable housing. And so for what I'm doing, uh, it, it's important to get uh, what the number of units are for both the total residential units for each of those parcels and for affordable housing, because some of those parcels, what uh, has been called the uh, CAFE uh, parcel, C, A, F, and E, plus D, which is a build-to-suit parcel uh, in the Concord Eastridge presentation uh, just a while ago, uh, that's what is in what she calls the first sequence, you know, or the first phase of the project. And that first sequence, those particular five parcels are the only parcels uh, that I can see that there's an actual timeline to completion in the project schedule. There's a project schedule in, in this ordinance, and then there's a master plan. The master plan has everything that's planned to be developed you know, by use for each of the parcels, but there's no, there's no completion date on the master plan. Uh, the, the, the process of building those parcels is detailed in the project schedule, but the project schedule only looks at those uh, what, what are being called the first sequence development. So those are the only ones that we have a, a definite date. And so I need to know what are the units, especially the affordable housing units that are in that first sequence uh, versus some of the other parcels in which affordable housing is also being planned. And just to make sure I understood your question yeah. so that we can capture it correctly, what yeah. you are asking for is by parcel the number of residential units planned. Yes. In addition, the number of affordable units planned out of that number. And also the sequencing and timing of the full master plan development. Yes, actually that, that would be ideal. It would be uh, for each parcel total number of units, and then affordable is a subset of that, uh, because, but we want to know what that is. Uh, so for each of the parcels, what's the total, what would be the part of it that's affordable by parcel, and then, it, and then for the parcels beyond the original first sequence, what is the uh, current plan for completion for each of those parcels? Because that will help me in, in deciding when do they come on board as far as being able to ultimately be paying property taxes. That's question number one. Number two, in order to, to uh, get a sense of a year-by-year year what's coming in from tax revenues, what's going out in the bond payment, uh, what I'll need is the current bond debt payment schedule. Uh, for, for the, uh, at this point, a $305 million bond, uh, both on the standard 30-year amortization period, which I assume the bonds would be uh, amortized over, and that would be the standard uh, length of the bond if it's paid you know, the, the way it's expected, as well as uh, for the plan 21-year accelerate payment because the current plan is to accelerate the payment of the bonds in order to bring down the total costs of paying off those bonds. And if it's done over a 21-year period, the current amount that's being estimated is $476 million. Whatever, What's the debt schedule to get achieve that $476 million over 21-year debt payment? We will provide that for the commission. Thank you. Uh, the third one... Third area, uh, and this is a bit broader, but it's very important. Uh, the, the one part of uh, the revenues, what Concord Eastridge uh, called the, what Susan Eastridge from Concord Eastridge calls one of the buckets of revenues going into this project, uh, is from the arena itself. And from my perspective as a consultant and looking at projects, 
You know, when you're looking at an amenity, the first thing you look at is what is the ability of that amenity to support itself? Because that makes the overall project much easier to work with if that amenity is uh, as self-supporting as it can be. Well, the self-supporting aspect of the arena, as far as its uh, effect on the bonds, primarily, from what I can see in the legal agreements, is primarily from sponsorship revenues and uh, marketing, or what they call uh, marketing dollars above and beyond that as well. But the key is sponsorship revenues, and from the consultant reports, uh, uh, both uh, the Mooney Cap from last year and the Hunden report that was done afterwards, in both of those reports, they particularly pointed out the importance of the naming sponsor for the arena uh, and the potential of annual revenues from that sponsor of more than a million dollars per year that would typically be used directly to pay the bonds. So it's very important from, from what I'm looking at uh, in looking at the bonds to know as much as we can about the sponsorship revenues. And, it, and, it, and right now, it, it's difficult because in Section 3.9 of the Navy Hill ground lease, when I'm looking for, well, where's, where's the dollar amounts or at least some sense of how I can determine a formula for the dollar amounts for these revenue sources, when I go to look for the sponsorship revenue, which again uh, is, is expected to be over, uh, I believe, uh, over $100 million a year, uh, and directly used for bond financing, when I go to the arena ground lease and I look at the language, it says, tenants shall fulfill landlord's obligation under the financing documents with regards to the sponsorship revenues by paying or causing the payment of such sponsorship revenues to the trustee for the bonds. So essentially the agreement appears to be deferring to the financing documents as far as determining the formula of what sponsorship amount ultimately is being used to pay the bonds. And so I just heard a moment ago that uh, apparently we don't have uh, financing documents. I need to know where some written form of where we are as far as the sponsorship revenues. Um, what, what is, do we have any contractual agreement for sponsorship, especially the, the initial naming rights? Who has the naming rights? What's the amount that's currently being negotiated for those rights over what period of years? Would that amount be paid in advance, which is often the case for new arenas, because then you can use that to reduce the amount of the bond. That information you know, can be uh, very helpful. Uh, in getting a sense of this arena's ability to support its own operation. We typically don't expect it to be totally self-supporting, but its ability to support itself then decreases the burden for everything else. And so whatever I can get in writing as far as where we are, you know, and I know that we're not, we're not at, at a final completion stage, but there should be some level of, of, of agreement as far as where we are, as far as the sponsorship revenues. And we will follow up on that request with the developers, sir. Thank you. That's it for me. Okay, I want to head over here. Uh, Mimi, you want to pose your questions, and we'll, we'll come around this way with the microphone. And again, please speak into the microphone so, so that everybody can hear. Okay, following up on a couple of questions that were raised early. Suzanne Long asked for a list of players, and we've had 
I know the list is long, but it's useful for us to understand um, deeper down, deeper into the organization, the full list. I know the information is available. It'd be nice to have it on one list. Our, our tab is binary. Uh, second. Um, uh, uh, I'm sorry, I'm sad. Will you, will you clarify? Are you at, I just want to make sure that I'm clear on what you're asking that. If we understand the structure of the players driving this project. From the developer side or from the city side? City and <clears throat> developer. Yes, ma'am. Because um, one of my questions is how does an already burdened city staff keep up with the enormous demands created by this incredible project? The vision of the project illustrated in these gorgeous renderings is incredible. But how does how does this how does city staff keep up with the demands of the project? In our binders, we had an analysis of additional planning and other staff that would be required, permitting and other staff that would be required to respond to this. Finance and economic development. Yeah, and that is right, right. As a, as a part of the requirements to city council for economic development projects such as this, as, the, as directors and the city staff the administration, we're required to, to, to take a look internally to figure out what additional resources we would need. And that dollar amount of memory starts to write over the 30 year period comes to about $73 million in terms of new full time employees, one time funding, and so forth. And that figure is also identified in the analysis done by that report. And so it's building in an additional capacity. And that is capacity that must be paid for and developed very early in the project, like even now. You know, that the city's obligation to build up its resources to respond to this demand has to happen way up front. And um, so that's one of my questions about the project. And therefore, I'll on to that, just something that, that I'm trying to understand, and it's something that um, it's, you're kind of touching on, and you guys have touched on to a, to a point. In reading through all of this, and maybe it's there, and I just haven't been able to pull it out quite yet, but I was curious to know, you know, if there's a way to give us an idea of, you know, we have private money coming in, a good chunk of it, we've got bond funds, trenches overseeing projects on the public side. Um, there's nothing in the ordinances about that $73 million additional stuff. So it is in the report as a need, but there's nothing in the ordinances that provides a dedication uh, for that. And again, our charge is to look at the ordinances and to make sure that there are appropriate commitments uh, there. And I'll just add that as a sidebar. We'll get the information on the oversight needs as identified by the city 
but again that's the uh, uh, you know part of our charge is to you know compare that to what's actually in the ordinance and maybe I missed it but I did not see anything to that effect in in the ordinances themselves and to follow up on what uh, John Werner was discussing on the Coliseum and its uh, or the arena and its future use how is there a way that we can compare where we are you know what are the revenues and costs of the current Coliseum yes ma'am versus what is anticipated with the future we, we do have that information uh, what I can tell you absolutely right now is that the Coliseum costs the city money on an annual basis and there is a debt that is still on the Coliseum as a part of this project, the developers defeating the debt, as well as paying the demolition costs and private funds, but we will provide you that detail as well. It'd just be nice to know where we are now versus where we hope to be in the future. Yes, ma'am. Um, one of my questions is about the really big A-block area, the TIF, the TIF area, and I think a lot of us are just or people like me are just getting up to speed on what TIF financing is. Um, the 80 block area has, I think, 65% private property, taxable, taxable property. Approximately 2.1 billion in taxable and approximately 1.45 billion tax exempt. If, if bond repayment is dependent on the incremental tax revenues, how, how do you prevent those private property owners from feeling absolutely targeted, you know, that the bond repayment is dependent on their paying extra taxes? How do they not feel unfair? There, there are no new special assessments that are created uh, to pay the bond on There are no new special assessments in the incremental finance area or anywhere else in the city as a result of this project. The only impact that any property owner in the incremental finance area has as it relates to their real estate tax would be through the normal assessment process uh, that the city undergoes every year and any rate increases or decreases that council sees fit in terms of establishing its annual real estate tax rate for the city. And then my, my final question is, how was the program, the program of number of housing units, amount of retail, amount of affordable versus market rate, um, the size of the arena, how was that program developed? And was it developed in consultation with city staff or, you know, how was that ideal program for our downtown development? I think that is an excellent question fit for the developer to answer when the commission sees fit to invite the developer to come in and present their project. Uh, they can answer those questions absolutely definitively for you. Great. Um, in our documents, well, and this is another question that perhaps only the developer can answer. In our documents, um, there are a few maps, some showing an intense retail corridor on the East Clay Street, new retail. And I was 
Am I administrating that or is that correct? That is a planning, that is, that is actually, a, that is under the purview of the city and the planning commission. Uh, okay. And we'll be glad to have some on the planning commission because uh, I'm not a planner to, to answer your questions. That's, 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 that's number nine to amend official zoning map for designating certain street blocks as priority streets and certain street blocks as street-oriented commercial streets. Uh, that's one of the ordinances that we were reviewing uh, in an area generally bounded. So we're looking at So that's in front of the Planning Commission. Microphone. You're saying that that's in front of the Planning Commission right now? Yes, sir. <coughs> well, we look forward to hearing from the developer on on the decisions and analysis that, that led to that kind of uh, determination or uh, zoning. Yes, ma'am. Thank you so much. My pleasure. I can. Yes. Okay, so I think, um, as my colleagues have shared, the questions I have are probably more about information needed for review and then extracting. Various details put together so that we are clear. There are, I think, six um, areas that I'm interested in hearing more about, particularly uh, the connection between the impact, uh, if you will, on issuance and the overall long term sustainable health of the city financially, and then the connectivity between the uh, economic impacts and projections as it relates to social impact projections. Primarily since the social impact will probably, if you will, uh, go first and come out and realize first and it ultimately will outlast 30 years of, of if you will, the financial sign of the deal. It seems that this economic sustainability and viability is critical uh, to an understanding. I think that all the bond questions are very, very important, particularly uh, if we look at uh, financing mix and how where uh, those numbers uh, that are related to interest and all of the various conveyances and who's where and what allows us to see uh, what the really impact the interest that's charged as it goes through the conveyances ultimately lead to a realized surplus impact social projections that are ultimately contained and are the selling points Will of, and I'm thinking back to the, 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 uh, the Davenport report, particularly pages 31 to 47, because that's where it really comes back to the overall impact of this project on the city. I think with everything that was accessed proper, um, and let me add some more, uh, just I guess discovery items for further conversation. Uh, and here are the questions that are realized that. Uh, once again, I think the focus really has to be on, and Dr. Walker said it, just so it's just a centering of thoughts here again, the connection between the nine ordinances and the one key uh, resolution on uh, key funding priorities, right? And, and really situating our thought there. Here, here are some things that need, if you will, some more information. What is the impact of the new um, development on the residents and current living in these communities? I think we need to be really, really clear to understand that in some uh, some clear way. Excuse me, Dr. Lucas. I'm just going to ask for you to clarify that question. Are you speaking specifically in this development area? Is the 
But what is the impact of redevelopment on those underprivileged, aka those who may be considered homeless or others who will have some type of mobility issue uh, there? And I think maybe uh, those type of residents is very important to hear uh, because there's some level of displacement or shifting uh, various communities uh, that really occupy this area. Uh, the other is how does the incremental revenue work within the context of incremental finance? Uh, I think it's very important to really understand, uh, and I think uh, Mark tried to pull that out, John, you tried to pull that out a little bit, because the assumptions of revenue. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I did not mean to my question. I'm not going to go over The assumptions of the incremental revenue are so essential uh, to uh, the delivery of the impact that the incremental finance and area has it. We kind of really do see that very clearly. And I go back to uh, and, and, and trying to really extract again the importance of seeing how those who live, work, or in this corridor, in uh, this area, how they are really going to be impacted on the long term, which leads to this whole notion of uh, ordinance to deal with. Uh, reconfiguring uh, portions of the right. Uh, what is the impact of that on the people who will move? I know GRTC, uh, but people who will come in and out work, uh, they have to go around stuff, what will be cut off, is it access? Uh, how does it change our travel pattern as it currently is so that people can, if you will, uh, know and be very, very aware as early as possible uh, to various interruptions, extensions, and their uh, travel around, through, and to. I think that the, the other thing that has to be very clear is that, and I go back to it, uh, the economic impact of a project is tied so much to the social impacts of the project. Uh, particularly when we, we say this word, affordable housing. Um, the question is, what does that really mean? How do we define that? Man, I should say prayer. <laughs> you all right, man? Come on back in here. We'll bring you water everything you need right here. You don't go anywhere. Man, but to really, really extract these means, I think that all these pages we do, uh, 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 which we're trying to define so many different terms throughout the ordinances. Uh, one is not affordability, the other is not social impact. Uh, the ordinances, I don't think, yet have clearly defined the changes that will happen beyond the life of the development project itself. Right? And I think citizens need to really understand that long-term impact on their life. Affordability, we got to define what does affordable housing mean? Everybody uses that term, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it will be actually affordable as far as possible. And so we really need to see that. The other is um, this whole notion of job creation. I think all of us are bought into the thinking around it, uh, but not just in uh, when you finish calculating how we will proceed uh, housing units and numbers of units versus square footage, but also where do we see 
job was coming from how, and the anchor tip, if you will, uh, bringing the project to fruition, particularly through its revenue, uh, to pay the debt services considered in, 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 in the Coliseum Arena. Uh, I think we really need to understand where those jobs uh, are we clear about. And I'm only uh, targeting that out because primarily throughout much of Davenport's case, Davenport's case is a bullet on a page and it just makes a statement and it doesn't help you understand how the city for a sustainable long-term period commit itself to various, uh, to these efforts. And the revenue distributions also that I've outlined uh, to support it, in, 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 in whether it's supported or in development agreement, don't necessarily provide us a clarity uh, uh, based on the history of how these allocations in the past have been done, connected to the other projects, how some things won't, if you will, fall off the table in the purview of the city uh, in those regards. Um, I think the, the last uh, uh, request, if you will, for clarity and information is. Um, how does uh, the ultimate economic impact of the project clearly show itself uh, in terms of real, and, and I just put, and I think Mark hit it, everybody remarked, Mark, Dr. Walker, uh, John, uh, I think uh, uh, Suzanne came back, and of course, Mimi, and I'm sure, to is the accuracy of the projection in the context of a pre-recession um, and how this type of project will ultimately lead and deliver what it ultimately says it is looking to do in, 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 in a, a clear, uh, concise, uh, concise way. Um, there is no document that clearly outlines social impact
Great. And, and I, we've got 30 minutes left, and we have promised to have a little bit of public participation here. So, um, Hakeem, did you have a quick follow-up there? I think that maybe there seems to be clarity on the, how the city will work together in all its intricate parts and departments to allow this project to stimulate some of the, if you will, goals, visions, and ultimately economic development and social impact. I think that maybe that is something that also needs to be added to future discussions and meetings about how all that clearly works together. Yes, sir. Because I think the insight that you really want to have has to be directly, uh, if you will, connected uh, to many concerns of various populations. Yes, sir. For example, you, you brought up uh, minority and uh, a woman-owned small business development, right? How do they participate? You, you talked about this minority contracting, and, and how does true diversity play out uh, uh, as opportunities for access uh, to to there as well? I think that when we talk about uh, the surplus, the surplus it, it, it can be fair to assume that the surplus is going to be generated through some type of uh, 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 increase to tax base or some type of, if you will, uh, increased cost pricing in some. Uh, some, some type of economic scale that, that, that will work somewhere within the project. And how that impacts the surrounding communities uh, and businesses is something that I think needs to be addressed. Yes, sir. Thank you. Mike. Um, a few. Um, and one of the basic uh, core assumptions here is that the city is better off in terms of its uh, revenue base from doing the project instead of doing nothing. And it assumes that 2% uh, annual rise in assessed value in the increment area over the 30 year period. I think that's the base assumption. Yes, sir. Could you give us some evidence as to why that assumption makes sense? For example, you know, sort of, I'm not sure I, I got this right, but it's sort of a tricky calculation because the question is, what's the denominator, right? If the calculation of 2% includes within it the increment area, then that includes, by your calculation, something like, I may have this wrong letter, $2.5 billion of taxes and property. So that, in the base case, there's going to be no growth in the tax revenues from that. I, so I'll, I want to understand that calculation more. Sort of how it's calculated, what's the numerator and the denominator, and also what's in the history. So, you know, any calculation of growth changes depending on what you, whether you pick up the Great Recession in your numbers or whether you don't. So I would like to see what the history is, what period of time we've calculated over. For example, what has been the growth in the tax <coughs> revenues in an area for the last five years? The last five years has been a pretty dynamic area in large portions of the increment area. If you drove around today, there's new apartments, new this, new that, and the other. So, could you give us sort of an annual or uh, numbers about what that tax rate, those tax revenues have been, so we 
don't mind, tell us how you're calculating so we sort of understand what the calculation is. You know? Yes, sir. But we've included the whole increment area or it's the development area or whatever it is. Yes, sir. Okay. And, and I'd like to add, on the flip side of that, the threat of if we do not and values becoming suppressed. Yeah. Uh, well, it, it is a consideration as well. Yeah. So... Um, could I just add one note there? I think it's likely that we'll invite the city assessor to come and provide additional uh, insight on that. You do have a lot of tax credits and grants inside the downtown area that yeah. those things need to be taken right. into account. Yeah. So as part of the request that uh, 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 maybe make, we have an, an organizational chart of the development side, developer side of the, I mean, there's a couple of different entities foundation, there's a corporation. I don't really understand all that. If we could have an org chart for the developer side as well, that would be great. Yes, sir. And I did hear that as a part of the staff's question as well, so we will be sure. Okay. Um, and maybe this is included in, in what John was saying, I'm not quite sure, but just a clear delineation of what the anticipated security package for the bonds would be. Yes, I'm not sir. sure I really understand what it is. I read the arena lease is saying there's no lien on the arena. There's no lien on the arena. I don't really understand how the bonds are secured. So, if somebody can just, you know, summarize that, that would be great. Yes, sir. Um, the uh, we've talked about the sources and uses, and there's been references to a couple reports that I just haven't seen. Maybe uh, I, I, I just haven't seen. Uh, I'm not sure where they are. If they're posted on the city site or. I don't think they are on the, I don't think they're posted on our site anyway. They're referenced in phases. This is going to happen first, that's going to happen second. There's a project schedule, which is part of our stuff. But that understanding of what happens first and what happens second, you know, uh, that would be just sort of a rendition of that would be great. Um, I think this is not a question for you so much, but just something for the commission to consider, the study commission to consider. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, which is, let's, there, there is certainly a possibility that the project can be completed as contemplated. New arena, lots of new affordable housing, new office buildings, new hotel, Bonds paid on time and generate not a dollar of incremental revenue. Um, would we think that would be still a worthy project or not? Is it only worthy in our minds if it in fact generates incremental revenue? And so I think we ought to ask ourselves that question because even if it even if it generates no incremental revenue, it's still completely transforms downtown, but that may not be sufficient. So I just think we've got to ask ourselves that question. Um, the, uh, the, uh, let's see, I'm going over here. So I didn't understand about, we talked about the, it gives the, the project was anticipated to give the city additional debt capacity over the period of time. But we also say that we have these priorities for the use of the excess revenues. 
So if we take the excess revenues and apply them for the use of schools and public safety, etc., wouldn't that eat up the money that would otherwise be available for additional debt? So I don't see how you can already say where the revenues are going to go and say that you've got additional debt capacity because it seems like you're using the same money twice. That's a great, that's a great question, Mr. Shul. Uh, it's a question for our financial advisor. Sure. But, but what, from what I understand and what I have read is that doing the project increases the city's debt capacity by approximately $50 million because of the new construction. The surplus revenues are just surplus revenues that we not contemplate necessarily programming those revenues for long-term debt service. So they could be one-time annual appropriations. It's not necessarily for capital projects, but they could be one-time appropriations. Okay, let me suggest here. <coughs> no, sir. Um, we're, we're just about out of time, so this is an important question uh, that Mr. Shul has asked um, there, and I know I've been asked this uh, a number of times. Uh, Suzanne has as well. So at the right time, we'll have a presentation by Mr. Wack and advisors on that very topic. Um, John had mentioned that the amount of bonds has, you know, is going to vary based on, we don't know it yet, and ultimately it will be determined based on the revenue stream, the debt coverage, and all the normal stuff, and what the interest rate is, how they can sell the bonds. But I think we need to understand, y'all can help us understand, what the bond revenue, excuse me, what the bond proceeds will be used for. So let's say instead of $350 million, there's $305 million. Does that mean we're going to get a smaller arena? Does that mean we're going to get what? What, what goes away if we if, if the bond amount goes down? Because the city has made no commitment to fund the shortfall, nor should the city. But I think we need to understand what it means if there's less, fewer bond proceeds. What happens? Yes, sir. We'll be glad to provide that answer. Okay. Um, the. Uh, um, Another thing that sort of is a, is a revenue thing, um, the operation and maintenance revenues for the arena, um, the available revenues are, there are several defined categories that go to the operation and maintenance of the arena. And of course, the developer could use additional sources if they felt like it. And if they're making a lot of money, they probably would. But um, maybe in that report it said this, but I just didn't see it. Could, could, could you all tell us, show us, why we think that the sources of revenue for operation and maintenance, not just routine maintenance, because routine maintenance developer has to pay, but non-routine maintenance, why we think the sources will be sufficient for those expenses, because something that could be dreadful, of course, and we'd end up with a new dead Coliseum, is if the money's not there to maintain the Coliseum, and as a result, it degrades, and then not the city would be obligated to do anything. The city would be faced with difficult choices. Do they want to let the arena continue to degrade, or they want to spend money and fix it up, all those sorts of questions. So I think if someone could sort of say, okay, here's what the revenue streams under the documents are for OM, 
here's what we think the O&M calls will be. And this is why we think they're sufficient. Yes, sir. Glad to answer that. The... Uh, I think that uh, at the moment, that's, those are the ones that I have that haven't already been answered, asked. Um, let me just make sure... Oh, so one other uh, question. Um, the Armory lease is for 65 years. Yes, sir. The Arena lease is for 30 years. Yes, sir. Why, why is the difference? I was not a part of that negotiation. Uh, it is not a question that I had that I personally asked in terms of the delta in the lease term, but we will provide that answer for yeah, it. It may simply be because the Arena lease has rent payable under it. Excuse me, the Armory lease has rent Thank you, and I do, so let's see, it's it's almost quarter of, so I'm going to ask some quick but um, arguably hairy questions um, that we'll, I don't think we'll necessarily be able to answer here today, and I do want to reserve a little bit of time for citizen comment. We've committed uh, uh, to do that. Um, first is a, a question, Leonard, to you. Are there any private dollars in the Coliseum proposal, I don't see that in the in the ordinance. All I see are public, um, you know, the incremental revenue supporting a, a bond sale uh, in the construction of the Coliseum. As I understand it, Chairman, the arena operator will be providing private capital for FFNA for furniture, fixtures, and equipment. Excuse me. Okay. So, but the actual construction of the facility is 100% publicly funded in essence. Okay. Um, secondly, and um, Mr. Brown, this may be a question for you. In the um, ordinance creating the Navy Hill Fund, um, it does explicitly say, uh, I may be misremembering this. Let me back up a second. I've done a lot of special districts all around the Commonwealth and have sort of grown up in the, the Dillon rule mindset, uh, which can be sometimes helpful and sometimes hurtful. There is a statute laid out for tax increment financing in the state codes, and there's a, a statement in there that says we're explicitly not doing that type of a tax increment zone. Um, this is probably a lengthy answer, but what was the rationale for that? Um, does that um, expose the transaction to any unnecessary risk based on that? I know there have been a couple other tax increment zones by agreement in other parts of the state. There's been litigation uh, around it, so perhaps it's acceptable. Um, but based on my knowledge of TIF financing in Virginia, this would undoubtedly be the largest. So there's a lot at stake there. And I think some rationale and explanation for that, that difference, particularly in light of a Virginia being a Dillon Rule state, would be extremely helpful. And then my last question has to do um, with public procurement. And uh, again, kind of a, a difficult question, but the uh, Economic Development Authority, are they subject to public procurement requirements? 
is is this project one that falls into the exemptions? I believe so, but the EDA itself will not actually be building anything, so there will be the EDA will be letting the construction contracts and design contracts. And I'll just share my um, experience, for example, with the private railroad. When they get a grant to do, like the Richmond train station here, uh, they're required to go through a process consistent with the public procurement act. So that's an important set of considerations here. If it's grant money, Originally, you know, from the increment district going to the EDA and then going to the NH district, along the way, does that bring with it a requirement to follow the Public Procurement Act or something similar to that? Um, would be a, a question to you. Okay. Uh, here's Can I go back to something you asked? And that was about the equity. I can't seem to find it, but in here somewhere there's a reference to equity commitments. I think we're about 150 million dollars. That's the yeah. number that's right in my mind. And what I would sort of expect is that the equity commitments are made in the form of equity, which is then pledged as security for, say, the bonds or part of other part of the project. So if someone could sort of explain, sort of describe for us how that equity is going to work, what's anticipated, all that, because that's one of the things that will be a key financing source for the Great. Great we, we will certainly provide that, that answer for you. Uh, the equity, so the debt and equity that you see explicitly called out in, in that area uh, of the agreement speaks to the private development portions of it. I just wanted to make that clarification. But, but I think it's still a condition received, so. Yes, sir. Okay. Okay, any last comments I do? I'm sorry, uh, Mark? No. Uh, yes, sir. Could I just ask for the... Uh, there's some assumptions that go to a very high level. If I'm adding this up correctly, there's about $7.5 million in one-time expenses and about $2 million in recurring expenses for more <coughs> rigor in terms of where those numbers come from. Which document? Which document? I'm going to just say section 2303 starts from page 19 and goes through page
think this is core to microphone. This is core to. Okay, this is. We're looking at, uh, and just to get us back to everybody in, in this room and also to the broader public, we're, what we're doing, we're looking at a series of ordinances uh, to begin to trigger an economic development project. A series of ordinances around funding, a series of ordinances around property conveniences, a series of ordinances around uh, zoning and rezoning, and the major ordinance is the authorization of the agreement. So the questions that have been raised, really the questions about the assumptions built and the outcomes that are, that are assumed are informing the governance structure of this project. So the reason we're going deep, particularly around that last ordinance, around the authorization agreement, is because we're creating a mechanism uh, to govern the this development project so that we realize the expected outcomes or the assumed outcomes. And if we have a problem with some of the assumptions built in, then we can't adequately develop a governance structure for this project. And we have to make some serious recommendations on that in order to realize that. I also would like to avoid us uh, moving into a zero-sum game, that it is either this development or no development. Because no one in this room, no one in this city wants anyone to live in poverty, to be homeless, to not have good schools, and to not live the fullness of their human potential. So we should jettison that line of thinking into how do we build the most effective structures around this city to ensure equitable development to realize the potential for all of our citizens in the area. So I don't think it's, it's ancillary that the, we're asking that these uh, statements around the outcomes be uh, fleshed out it is core to the very idea that we must then review these ordinances and look at them and assess them to then look at the adequacy of them for the desired outcomes. That's what I want to say. Thank you. I just had one last question. Suzanne? You don't have to answer right now, but um, so in this kind of dovetails on what you were talking about, the government structure. So I was looking through the development agreement and I noted five places. Where the city has to, it says the city shall, and then they have to do something, and sometimes there are time frames put into the agreement, and then there are also, if there's a default around that, you can have a default in the agreement, or you can push the um, performance targets out. So, what, who is gonna, who's the city in, in 
think that's a Mr. Brown <laughs> question. You want to? Let's just take a. I, I think it deserves it deserves a fuller answer. Actually, all of these, but kind of a quick overview, and because we do need to, we're going to be run past a little past noon to accommodate public comment. Okay. It it, it does uh, require a fuller answer, which will provide. But uh, generally, the CAO controls the administration uh, of the city government, city agencies. Uh, and the CAO direct particular agencies to do particular things that are in their area. You have things to be able to right of way out, handled by the Department of Public Works, and to be able to utilities and handled by the Department of Public Utilities, things like that. But generally, it's not council. This is the only uh, council that's going to be. I mean, there will be further actions for council that are similar to the actions that are before them now.
that's for me part of the question. I had the exact same question. All the stuff the city's going to do, honestly, the city does not have a good history of approving permits in a timely fashion. In fact, just the opposite. So we just need to know that y'all are going to be set up to do this so they're not on the hook. Can I interject one note here? And this is my life I've lived with project management uh, throughout here. There's something called deemed approval. Be a lot of deemed approvals if we're not careful, and it's typically seven days. So, uh, and I was waiting to a future meeting to raise this, but I'll put this on the table for the uh, city attorney's office. Is deemed approvals have a you know a, a challenging history in the U.S. and in Virginia, and so again, I'm jumping ahead a little bit. Is um, has particularly where it's a health, safety, and welfare issue. Can you, by ordinance, allow deemed approval? Uh, I'll pose that as a question for you all to, to take up when we start looking at governance and, and management issues. Leonard, last words and uh, <laughs> on this. Thank you so much. Did you have any final words to the commission? No, again, uh, we truly appreciate the discourse and questions about this phenomenal project. Uh, we have taken your questions, your comments, and your concerns to heart. Uh, we appreciate the task that you have in front of you, and we'd just like to reiterate our ongoing steadfast willingness to provide a timely response to your questions and to continue to be open and transparent throughout this process. Uh, so again, on behalf of our mayor, administration, and 227,000 citizens in the city of Richmond, thank you so very much. Okay. Thank you, Leonard. Uh, okay. Again, we've made a commitment for public participation. Is there anybody who would like to address the commission? Got one hand, two, three, four. Uh, let's start over here. Let's go stand up and uh, let, let's keep our comments limited to about two minutes. Uh, right now, if we can accommodate that and at future sessions, we'll have opportunities for greater presentation uh, on that. One of the things that we're asking is that your commentary does um, comment on what was discussed today. We're not looking for generic statements pro or con. We've had an early discussion about the ordinances and their impact and uh, their governance. So um, let, well, let's let's go on up here. I, I do want to, I did promise to get people out of here around noon. So come on up at the microphone if you would please introduce yourself in particular for a city resident to uh, uh, share that information with us. Hi, my name is Kristen uh, Reed. Thank you. 
appreciate you going fast. Yeah. But you're going too fast for me to hear you. <laughs> the Lee Street Regret was included in today's presentation, but we did have news articles in September that argued that the, the Lee Street Regret was no longer on the table. So just some clarification about that would be amazing. Um, you talked about doing a visualization of the flow of tech funds. I know that Matt Teresa, who's a faculty member at ECU, has been very interested in doing this. He's, he's posted on social media that he is um, available to support a project like this. I, of course, can't commit him, but we would really love to see something like that. So I have a longer list, but I'll stop there. I'll see you guys. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, the UR professor. Um, I am you... a faculty member. Oh, if you could put him in touch with John and me, and we can maybe collaborate with city staff to get that. I think that visualization is really important yes. out there. Thank you. Okay. Could we? Could you make sure you send us the remainder of your questions? Yes. And and that and that and that's available to everyone that's speaking now. Please feel free to follow up with uh, either more questions or more detail to your questions and, and comments. Okay. There was a second gentleman. Over here. My name is John Moser. I live in the third district. Um, I'm going to just summarize my questions and follow up in more detail by email. I appreciate the opportunity to do that. Um, we, like everybody else here as a citizen, I've heard almost two years of promises and projections and puffery, and I'm just now getting to the Truth of the matter, so I'm glad that the commission is here to help us figure out what's real and not real about this project. Um, I basically have five questions right now that I like, and I will follow up in greater detail. Um, we're told that there is no project without the arena. This is from the developer. And I question that assumption. I'd like for you to question that assumption. Uh, what if that land was? was put to another purpose like retail or more housing or something like that. I don't accept the idea that the area is necessary for a vital redevelopment of that area to occur. Or even that we need an arena of that size. Uh, second question is, is it necessary for the city to own the arena? I've asked this of the developer on August the 30th at a meeting. I asked the developer and the mayor directly on September the 30th why the city needs to own the arena. And I hope that somewhere in the ordinance and in your process, uh, a viable answer to that question will come out because all I've gotten so far in response are sort of qualitative answers. Like uh, the mayor told me something related to the pride of the city owner owning the arena. Um, I want to get quantitative reasons why we need an arena. Can I, can I just say, I don't even understand how the city does own the arena since it's built on the ground lease and the city is not the lessee. So that's a question uh, for Leonard or whoever. Why does somebody think the city owns the arena when the lessee should own all the leasehold approvals? So I don't understand that. I hope we get to the, the answer to that because uh, it seems that the developer says so much is great about this project, but they don't seem to want to have it. I think they do on it, so that's why I'm one. Okay. Uh, the other question I have relates to the EDA in the process there. And in the city here, I've been here all my life. We've seen a lot of other projects managed by the EDA. 
that are anything but transparent. And so I am curious as to whether or not the EDA actually needs to be in the role they are in in this project, or could it be done another way? And I understand city staffing is a question, but um, why does the EDA need to be involved? It's just a big general question. I'll follow up with more details later. Um, there's a big assumption that's been addressed here a little bit today about uh, a claim that the developer frequently makes is that uh, without this project, no development would occur in that area. And lately, that's been enhanced in their, in their uh, assertions by saying that organic development can't occur there because there's no infrastructure. Uh, and I'm going to be brief here. If we go back just a couple of years, the city was asserting that the most important property development in the city was the was 60 acres on Arthur Ashe Boulevard where the Diamonds currently sits. I would assert that if the city re, re-adopted that priority in 2015 to develop the boulevard, which at the time was projecting a $13.6 billion annual revenue stream, okay, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll make it brief. Let's just put it this way. There's revenue to be reaped from the boulevard that could be applied to developing infrastructure in Mayville. And if it's within your purview to examine that question, I'd appreciate it if you would. And then uh, you already raised, uh, both of you raised a concern earlier about uh, the bond commitment. This is in section 6.1, where it talks about the EDA, the agreement for the actual details of the bond occurring after the ordinances were adopted. And I want to make sure the city has the the ability to uh, return to the agreement and nullify it if the actual terms of the bond are not consistent with this agreement. That's all I have for right now. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Moser. Was there another hand over here? Yes, sir. Oh, sorry. I also am very interested in their 
uh, nationwide, negatively affecting school districts as far as the state funding formula. So when you look at the state composite index and the local composite index, it uh, is a, based on the property value. So what happens when you go from the before picture to the after picture in a period of five years? Um, the closest uh, data that we have that private citizen can do would list that this development as planned would cost Richmond Public Schools $3.8 million a year for a total of $96 million over the life of the project. When you factor in also um, some uh, and some of the ordinances for city council as well, the $2.5 million that will be taken from the parking revenues around the area as well. Uh, and again, we also want to use staff uh, on the front end to make sure we can make, meet such a 30-day demand so that the developer can just not make material changes because time lasts. That, I think it says $73 million that will be an additional staffing to provide for that. All of these things are very expensive, and as Mr. Gordon pointed out in the break-even on uh, the Davenport ones, the difference between doing this project and not doing this is only about $400,000 a year. So if that is the situation that we are in, if it's compounded with failing to adjust the base for inflation, along with the loss uh, of uh, state funding for schools, along with the other things that are into the TIF district, I'm not sure how that's financially responsible. Thank you. Mr. Chipman, uh, thank you. Um, one of the things we do with written materials, could you send these to us electronically so that Mr. Gurner can post them? Absolutely. I also send you the five on two more reports. One of them is by David Marin, who I believe agreed to provide the council. So any questions that you have in here, we'll verify those things. You can reach out to me, but yeah. Mr. Marin wants to be a resource. Yeah, thank you. Great. Anybody else wanted to address commission over here? There's one gentleman in back. And anybody else after him? <coughs> All right, you, you have the final word, sir. Oh, sorry. Oh, we have one more. One more over here? Yeah. Uh, okay. Oh, you're <laughs> you're the symbol guy, right? <laughs> the crashing symbols. <laughs> Mine's real short, too. Can everybody hear me? Yeah. I'm just naturally loud. Um, first of all, I'd like to thank you all for your hard work on this commission. This is uh, a great comfort to the community, you know, that we might finally get some details on this project. Um, my point was brought could you, up. Could you uh, introduce yourself? Oh, I apologize. Yeah, my name is Trey Peters. I'm a resident of the first district. Um, it was brought up earlier. We have concerns about the availability of Section 8 housing uh, in these new housing developments. Um, I don't know if you've been following the news. This is sort of uh, less my focus than my focus has been more on the RRHA recently. I don't know if you're aware of the occurrences that have been going on there. Um, we've been, it's been asserted that this is, maybe Hill, is a discrete project. Uh, that this is self-contained, there will be no displacement. I think to do that is to narrow your vision too tightly, because it is a fact that there is a privatization effort underway that will result in the demolition of the courts, the conversion of the entire public housing stock of Richmond, Virginia, into Section 8 vouchers, at the same time that this project is going on. We both know that Tom Farrell and his development partners are very heavily engaged in both projects. I find it incredible that this is a coincidence. And I would just urge you to bear that in mind. If this is the linchpin that is necessary to get the courts cleared and demolished, then to help this project. 
Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Sir, um, you provided us great sound effects, so you, you, you get the, the, the final word <laughs> today. If you would please introduce yourself. So, so hopefully my voice too is... And, and your, uh, your name, sir? Um, I'm, I'm John Richmond. Um, I'm a resident of the 5th District. And just two thoughts. Uh, first, um, on the project itself, um, I was curious as to whether, well, there's not a lot of trees in the project area, and a lot of the buildings are above the tree line, so it seems ideal for solar power generation. So I was wondering if the cost and or benefit of distributed solar or other renewable energies um, has been included as a part of the analysis. And second, I wanted to uh, express appreciation to Dr. Walker's comment on this not being uh, a, a zero-sum process. Um, you know, a, a lot of folks have asked why NH District was the only bid that was submitted uh, in the process. And personally, my hope is that uh, this group um, is able to uh, consider alternatives other than this exact proposal or nothing, because it seems like there's a lot in between Thank you very much. Uh, anybody else want to speak? And I apologize to the commission. We're, we're about 17 after the, uh, after the hour. It's been a long day. Um, I think we have more questions than answers, uh, obviously. So our next uh, meeting will be at this location in two weeks. Um, the focus of that meeting, Mr. Gerner has been working on a financial model uh, that will start to slice some of these by year. Um, and uh, to the extent possible, <laughs> I know you're under the deadline on this. This is what us consultants do. So uh, he's invested a considerable amount of time. Uh, hopefully at that time, too, something I've been working on um, is uh, some type of risk matrix, but I'm, I'm well behind my own internal schedule that I think will help uh, based on today to capture some of these things in that, in that same risk uh, matrix uh, there. I'm guessing um, if the principal presentation next time is John, that it's probably a good idea to have uh, Mr. Wack and the city's financial advisors um, at that meeting there. We may have some call and response um, over those issues. Uh, I wonder uh, if, if members of the commission have questions that come to mind uh, that we'd like for the city <coughs> or developer to respond to before and you know, in between. I wonder whether it would be useful to maybe have some place on the site where we could post our question so that we give we wouldn't put Leonard on the spot and right when he's standing up, we give him a little advance right, right. warning about what we're going to say if in right. fact we knew what we want to ask. So if I may so just we have an internal protocol that John has developed on this under the FOIA rules. So right. no that good approach. I mean even questions that we come up with after after this meeting. If you could, you know, please uh, copy me with those questions, and then I'll find some way to organize them in such a way that we can post them on okay. the website so that we as a group continue to follow the approach that City Council is now, follow, uh, is now doing, and that is asking questions publicly and then sharing the answers that we receive publicly when we get those yeah, answers. Right. Okay. Leonard? But in terms of the generation of those questions, 
and distribution to the city or transfer or transmittal to the city so that we get them. Uh, respectfully ask any questions that you all amalgamate if you'll send them to us via mail. And, uh, and we will also copy the, the council staff on that so that we're keeping both sides of the house informed. Okay. Well, listen, it's been a, a very long but I think educational uh, morning. Questions are good at this stage. But we only have a limited number of, of, of meetings. Uh, and, again, you think about our schedule. Uh, we have to hold our public hearings in mid-December. So we've got basically two months to figure out what is the focus. We can't touch everything. What are the things that are most important to be asked and answered and to make recommendations on. Okay. Great. Thank you, everybody. Great.